This opening passage, which I think is going to give background into the ages of the world or the Weltelters, from the Theosopher of the 17th century, Jakob Burma, and it was published in 1623, and the text is the Mysterium Magnum. This passage is called, Of the Two Principles, God's Love and Anger of Darkness and Light. In this flagrant or enkindling of the fire, two kingdoms sever themselves and yet are only one. But they divide to one another. The one comprehends not the other in its own source, and yet they proceed from one original and are dependent on one another. And the one without the other were a nothing, and yet both receive their source from one original. This is a fundamental passage because what Burma is talking about are these two primal forces, a light fire and a dark fire. And we're not meant to think of this in binary logic. We're meant to think of one as the ground of the other. Mm. And they're linked together by what's called identity or the identity of what's called the Godhead or spirit. And so the same logic plays into the text that we're going to talk about today, the, the ages of the world, where the what is and being, the real and the ideal, sorry, being and what is, are grounded by something called the indifference point. So, at, so it's pure identity, but when being is set forth in movement, the what is is at rest. And so there's always a rest in, there's always a movement and rest, always kind of flipping back and forth, a higher and a lower, and a kind of rotary circle, circling motion. So I thought that would give some reference to some of the text, especially some of the kind of poetic language, the darkness, the light, the yes and the no that, that's played out through the text. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, in view of violence without object This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, we just want to mention we do have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a buck a month there, but if not, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. But Taylor and I are very excited to bring you all, Christopher Sator, to discuss some shelling. So Christopher, thanks so much for taking the time to join us and, and introduce us to the work of F.W.J. Shelling. Or did, did I get that right? I hope I did. I think that's <laughs> it. You did, yeah. <laughs> so what is it? Friedrich Wilhelm, what's the J? Yo Johan? Um, Friedrich Wilhelm Josef. Josef. I was making a, a guess. Yeah, it's a there's a lot of Friedrich Wil Wil Wilhelms, <laughs> aren't there? Right? There's uh yes. there's Nietzsche, there's uh what I know that Hegel has it in his name too, right? It's uh there's Novalis, um Friedrich von uh, Hardenberg, yeah. Okay, so yeah, that's uh I guess naming your sons after a king or whatever. <laughs> is a is a good way to go in any case 
you know, Christopher, we're glad to have you here today. We've talked a lot about all things German idealism, if you will, but we did want to hear about your background and your interest in this period of philosophy that still continues to fascinate and to sort of inspire new ways of thinking. And just maybe tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey. Thanks for having me here. I'm quite honored actually to be discussing Schelling and with you and these great texts. So thank you for having me on. My journey is a great, I call it the great 360. So I pretty much started, so I started at a community college. I wasn't sure of what I wanted to do. There was a retired Kant scholar, actually, believe it or not, working at this college. And he was reading the essay, What is Enlightenment by Kant? And in this essay, Kant says, sapere ude, so dare to know, have the courage to use your own understanding. And this blew me away because I was, I took it as a, okay, what do you mean by dare to know? What does that even mean to have the courage to use your own understanding? And then I began studying with him and we read Kant, Hegel. And by the time I got to university, I was reading Kant, Fichte and Hegel. And I was really, really immersed in German idealism. But then I kind of branched out. I kind of left German idealism a bit. I started reading Nietzsche and Heidegger, and then slowly moved away from Heidegger because of some complications with Heidegger. Heidegger yeah, thought. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I found Deleuze, and it's so funny. The first time I took a Deleuze class was a fourth-year course on his cinema books. And the Oh, fascinating. That's a fascinating awesome. intro. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and the professor decided that this was the best text to understand Deleuze's, you know, kind of philosophy of time. Yeah. Through the cinema books. And when I first read Deleuze, I had to leave to go throw up because I, it, it challenged everything. I'm not even joking. Because at the time, I was so encased in phenomenology. And like the first 10 pages of the cinema book, it's Deleuze just ripping apart phenomenology, talking about how it's just like drawing a line and like abstracting on this line. <laughs> From there, I, I became kind of obsessed with Deleuze and especially difference of repetition and the logic of sense. I wrote my master's on Deleuze with um, a Hegelian Deleuzean named Jim Vernon. But I also had sent my master's MRP to both Peter Hallward, who I was writing against, and um, Constantine V. Bundas, who yeah. was from Canada. Yeah. So Constantine read it and enjoyed it very much. So did Peter, even though I was attacking Peter's position. And essentially, do you want me to tell you just a little bit about it? Oh, of course. I mean, you know, because just to preface, Peter Howard, he's maybe even more than Badu has written most virulently against Deleuze's philosophy. So it's kind of nice to know that even though you were countering his position, he appreciated your input. Oh, he sent me like three different articles he had written. And I mean, Peter Howard's position on Deleuze is, I don't want to say sloppy. It's just, it's interesting. You can tell he thinks that Deleuze is apolitical and he thinks he's yes. spiritualized. and It's kind of a straw man in absolutely. a way. But go ahead, tell, tell us about the, your, your work. And so I took it on. I took this thesis on. I took Peter Hallward on. I took Badiou on. And I took Zizek on. Because I thought all of them didn't have a very good reading of Deleuze, especially Badiou. Badiou, one of the biggest problems with Badiou is that he only reads Deleuze. He doesn't read the Deleuze and Guattari work, which is yes. very problematic. I tend to think that Zizek just is too dismissive of Deleuze. And Guattari. 
So I wrote this, you know, I wrote this piece and I sent it to some Delizians and I heard back from Ronald Bogue and he said he really liked it. And then I heard from Ian Buchanan and they published it in Deliz Studies. And then when I started my PhD, I started becoming a little disheartened with post-structuralism, not because of the, the material, but more since the kind of cliqueiness of some of the, the yeah. academics that are involved. And so I realized that I need to find my own niche. And I ended up taking a class with my mentor, Joan Steigerwald, who is a, she works on Kant and Fichte and Schelling and Novalis. And she's a, a kind of romantic scholar. She works on the history of the philosophy of science, romanticism and German idealism. And then that's it. I read Schelling's freedom essay and that was it. I was just like, this is, because at the same time, the freedom essay is a response, oddly enough, to Deleuze's Spinozaism. Interesting. And, and it, in a sense, Instead of focusing on expressionism, it kind of breeds life into pluralism and, and it has a kind of relational ontology. It, it talks about this idea of process and personality and individuation before Simone Den, right? So yeah. such an interesting text and I've just fell in love with it. I revisited, since you brought him up, I revisited his history of the notion of the individual, which is kind of his notes leading up to, Simone Den's notes leading up to his his thesis, as you know, Deleuze draws on heavily, at least the first half of it. And I thought it was interesting the way that he talks about Schelling, the way that he kind of, if you will, summarizes him. So that was, I'll just read the first sentence. He says, for Schelling, the living being consists of a pair of opposites and of a power superior to this pair of opposites, playing the forces of these opposites against one another so as to maintain life by inflecting them and playing them like instruments. I thought that was an interesting way of beginning his summary of what he got out of out of Schelling. I didn't even know that he had written on him. So thank you. Now I'm going to have to go take a look at that. But he's very he's right. There is this, you know, France at the time had been so Hegelianized by Kojev and yep. Philippe, right? Yep. That Hegel's philosophy, and to this day, I still think, you know, even contemporary Hegelians, there's this kind of asphyxiating gaze on Hegel's dialectic. And there's so much to Aufhebung or sublation. And what Schelling has against, and I think what Schelling has against sublation is the same thing that Deleuze has against it. Deleuze calls it the shadow of difference, meaning mm. it, it doesn't allow something, it doesn't allow this emerging virtuality to become, to breathe. And so yeah. Schelling maintains contradictions and contradictions are not, are not bad things. Contradictions right. Right, he'll say things like, "Without contradiction, there is no life." Yes, he yeah, he says that exactly. Yeah, yes, and so what contradictions are held? They're held in their individuality, yet they're united by, let's say, they're united by, kind of an imminent identity that's the unconditioned that it's called that holds them in place, but allows them the breathing room, allows them to be expressive, to be themselves, to differ from one another. I like that. And I told Coop to look at this and I know he did. I liked that the first time Schelling appears in Deleuze's Difference of Repetition, he very vehemently kind of defends Schelling against Hegel's attack. Hegel kind of uh, parodies Schelling. It's this Schelling's difference is the night in which all cows are black or something like this, right? Right. And, De and Deleuze is very much saying like, of the two thinkers, Hegel and Schelling, it's Schelling who actually brings forth difference with a kind of, in a way that actually rescues it or, or 
gives it a kind of life where in Hegel's dialectic, it, it's this false movement. Obviously, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and abstracting no. from a lot of things, but I, I thought that that was an interesting, because I didn't know until reading that section, Hegel's remark, which has become almost as famous as the Owl of Minerva and all this other you know, shit that gets picked from, from Hegel. I didn't know that the context was so clear that he was uh, disparaging his contemporary. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll get back to that in one second, but I just yeah. wanted to make a, I wanted to make another correlation between the two. When Deleuze starts talking about the color red and difference in repetition, he says that red is not just red. There are degrees of red that are unfolding within this continuum of redness. I honestly think it's like footnotes to Schelling because mm. the same thing is happening. So when Hegel makes this, this attack at Schelling's absolute indifference or the yeah. indifference point that you read in the ages of the world, what indifference allows for in the same sense are degrees of difference to unfold. So the indifference point allows for difference to emerge. It holds the contradictions, but allows individuality and the so-called play of the potencies. So Hegel never got this. He never understood this. He just saw this as a homogenizing absolute. But really, right. the true homogenizing agent would be, in a sense, Hegel. So Hegel's phenomenon notoriously with this idea of a seed that then grows into a plant and the seed vanishes as it grows into a plant and then to a fruit. Ironically, Schelling brings up the same example. But each of those stages are unique and are, are an identity. And yeah. they're a part of the flow of that process, right? So rather than synthesize everything in just the fruit, Schelling will say, no, 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 you're missing this. You're missing the idea that the seed is differentiated from the plant. The plant is differentiated from the flower and the fruit. And all of them are held together by the process as opposed to elfheibung or sublation in the end of the fruit. So he leaves a teleology. Hegel leads this kind of telos or purpose that ends in the synthesis. And what you miss is the process. You miss right. the yeah. organic life, right? So I was thinking about this too. Uh, well, we may have to cut this out, but I was thinking, Christopher, it's interesting that you mentioned color because I was thinking about how more so like Schelling discusses sort of how I guess the object holds its contradiction within itself. Am I sort of on the right track there, at least perhaps to maybe broadly. So I was thinking about the way that the way that color works in terms of sense and whatnot is all the colors of the spectrum are absorbed except for one. And that's what gets reflected. So it's like, I don't know, I thought there was something to do with this identity or difference or I don't know, I thought that was just interesting relative to, you know, this sort of broad frequency and absorbing the opposites or i don't know maybe it's reflecting the opposite or you're you're right you're right so in deleuze this is called univocity right the univocity of being and so what's going on is that the two predicates being and what is together they're the one which is the identity they express the one but as expressible they have the potential to be actualized and so they're kind of like your two hands i always talk about this your mm -hmm. left and right hand are made of the same I, same entities right they're flesh bone blood but they're different they're different in the sense that they're spatially located different yet they can be they can be brought together but right. they're still different in themselves right your left is not your right but they you know they mimic this organism that is your two hands clasped together or the fact that you can use them that, or you can use your hand to create things. So he'll, he gives this example of the eye's power to see and vision. So mm -hmm. there's these two plays, these two expressive 
plays of the function of them, yet they're still maintained. They're still, their identity is still maintained. The what is and the and being for Schelling, maybe there's not a lot of difference between Deleuze's virtual and actual here. And maybe just going back to like the influence of Leibniz on both Schelling and Deleuze, I'm assuming that that's probably just in the German tradition, you know, it feels like that would have to be influential on Schelling, but I don't know if you have a response. Actually, you want to know the funny thing about that is? Where Deleuze would call it intensive, Schelling would call it dramatic. Interesting. Really. So I could see that. Yeah. So the virtual, see, this is the one thing where they're very connected, right? Yeah. In difference repetition, Deleuze talks about a thunderstorm, okay? It's, it's my favorite example of DNR. <laughs> and what he says is that in a thunderstorm, we humans are so used in this kind of human causation to realize that, oh, when we see thunder, we see lightning. But that's not what happens. What happens is warm air rises, cold air falls down, condensation comes together. So there's these, these kind of virtual intensities, these virtual forces, you know, larval selves being connected together. Then finally, we get this swirl of forces or potencies in the Schillingian terms. Yep, yep. And then boom, thunder happens because now what's happened is the forces have somehow been put together in a, to a, an assemblage or a multiplicity. And then we realize the individuation of the storm by the lightning clap. Now notice, mm-hmm. notice just in the Schillingian terms and the Deleuzean terms, how this entire process is the event of the thunderstorm and not just, I don't want to beat up on Hegel, but Hegel would be, agree with the kind of human example of thunder, lightning, that's the semblance, that's the synthesis. And yet there's this kind of relational power here going on where there's hot and cold air, condensation, and then finally the clap of thunder. And so you're, you're totally right here. So being as the real and the what is as this ideal, they are in the same process, stretched between these two processes. One grounds the other mm-hmm. while the other comes into action. And he'll say things like, a human being can be expressive of both love and wrathfulness. But when they're loving, they're not wrathful, but they still have that potential, right? That, that ability, or to use Schelling's language, the expressible potentiality to be both wrathful at one point and loving at the other time. So he's not naive in the sense that he knows that being is filled with a multiple predicate. Schelling is kind of a, a logician here. So he'll say predicates, Deleuze will say larval selves or potentialities, or even nomadic selves, you know, bustling, right? And I do think that uh, it's interesting you bring up some of this because I'm thinking about not only in the thunderstorm example of the forces of contraction and expansion, right, right, that occur to create that burst of sound that we think of as thunder, but I'm also thinking of this interesting way of relating love and wrath or love and and, uh, anger which I know that at least Schelling talks about it in, in many ways, but Simon Don kind of notes that love and wrath have to be united for, what does he say, the, for the love unites with wrath to create the wisdom of the world soul. This is kind of how he summarizes Schelling. And, and it makes sense that love and wrath wouldn't necessarily be opposed because they both indicate passion. The opposite of love and wrath would be, well, I'm not, well I wouldn't want to use Schelling's term indifference here, to, to oh. but it would be, what dispassionate removal or something like this, right? It would it would be the the lack of passion. They're united by the unconditioned, right? The, or the indifference. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, you're right, they are united, but 
you can't be, you know, you can't have a blurring of the two of them, right? When you're mm. loving someone or you're loving your partner, you're loving your partner. When you're upset with the world, you're kind of wrathful or you're upset. And so you, there's these multiple predicates or multiple powers or potencies that are, are in fluctuation. While one is grounding the other, you're in movement. You're in that movement of love or you're in that movement of wrathfulness or anger, as Schelling says. And, and this is the dynamic of Yaka Burma, right? This is mm, Burma's... Mm-hmm influence why we read that point about darkness and light and you know love and wrathfulness so it goes back to kind of burma's theosophical philosophy and the funny thing is that deleuze was sorry deleuze oh my god Schelling was very influenced see let some you know freudian stuff is coming up here <laughs> Schelling was very influenced by the theosophical tradition but he knew he he was not a mystic or a theosopher or a theologian he mm. was someone that took these concepts and made them philosophical I was trying to talk to Coop last night, maybe in a confused way, but mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out, and I don't want to necessarily bring in Zizek and Lacan and these other thinkers through the back door, even though that's perhaps my fault for reading Zizek's introduction <laughs> in this volume first. But I was wondering what you would make of, for example, I know that Schelling himself refers to God. You mentioned Godhead. There's also Simon references an, an Ubergottheit, this like supreme yes. super divinity or something like this, because you made this sure. point that I was about to call him Zizek, that Schelling, sorry, Schelling, isn't a theosopher, a theologian. What do we make of God here? Is it is it meant to be kind of an empty concept for, not empty concept, that's not even right. Is it meant to be taken Maybe not in the sense, obviously, of like a Christian personal God, but more of sort of giving a word to some sort of cosmic force. Because you also mentioned that Schelling is kind of opposed to the simple teleological vision of Hegel. So I'm kind of wondering if you can unpack perhaps, and maybe this is too big of a question, but if you can unpack perhaps what God, at least for you and your reading, is kind of doing for Schelling in a text like this. First and foremost, there's a difference between content and form. Mm -hmm. So we can say that the content is the mythos. So this, this could be like the mythos of Christianity. And the form itself is the logos, the word. Now, I'm not trying to bring in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was flesh, or I'm not trying to bring up that passage from the Bible. What I'm saying is that why this is such a beautiful passage is because at the end of the Critique of Pure Reason, Mm -hmm. Kant says, if one were to go past reason, not only would you make reason dizzy, which he would go beyond the abyss of reason. And Mm. Schelling says in the third draft of this, Age of the World, that he is going to go beyond all noumena and go beyond the abyss of reason. And so what is the abyss of reason but the beginning of all beginning? Mm. The beginnings mm-hmm. that we, as you know, Mayasu calls the ancestral event that we've mm-hmm. never experienced, we cannot cognize. And so what he's doing is, rather than doing the old, again, to beat up on Hegel, the science of logic, the doctrine of being, where we're flipping from being to non-being and then finally becoming, telling is saying, no, no, that's a false dichotomy. We need to start from the beginning of all beginnings. And what is this beginning? It's this unprethinkable moment. How can we start thinking about this moment? Well, we have the same forces, right? The contractive and expansive force that was be- in that first moment. So... He kind of extracts backwards this moment and allows the content and form of mythos and logos to guide the structure. So it's a, as Jason Wirtz says, it's a cosmic poem. 
Now, the way that I read it, I'm not very religious. So I read this as a, a kind of cosmic principle, like you just said, like Whitehead's God, this, this superjective creative process, or even Bergson's kind of, for me, the Godhead would be like the Elan Vital in mm-hmm. creative evolution. Basically, what we get is this, I like saying it like this, imagine a seed, okay, a seed, we're not going to play the Hegel game here, imagine a seed by itself, a seed without soil or air or water or light would live on eternally, unless there's no stimuli to make it unfold. However, you take that seed, and you put it into a a situation where there is stimulus, what happens, the seed cracks, half the shell, you know, falls away becomes the so-called unconscious. And the other side that's submerged in the soil becomes consciousness in the present. It unfolds. Mm. It plants its roots down. It starts moving forward, expanding. But what Schelling is trying to say to us is that these contractive and expansive forces that start off with this process of the seed, what they show us is the will that wills nothing, this empty ground, is this moment of contraction in all life, And this will that wills something, this expansive force, is something that's always expanding and attracting. Now, here's the problem with it. It's kind of like a Russian doll or a circle. If you can imagine the outline of the circle to be the eternal or the godhead, you would have an infinite amount of circles inside, which are the potencies. Essentially, what he's saying is we have this, in Greek terms, aperon, this boundary, But when you put a boundary around a boundary, that itself is a boundary. And you get this Mm. paradox, this infinite regress. So Schelling is literally saying that this unconditioned is the binding of these forces that are emergent, right? They're emergent processes. This is why I love this text. It's the first kind of philosophical emergentism that is unfolding. And so essentially, God is this eternal outline of the circle. Let's call it this, the unconditioned is this moment, this outlining of the circle. For people that are listening, I'm actually drawing a circle <laughs> in virtuality in the middle of the air. And so all the other circles are they're unfolding. But the funny thing about this is that, you know, in the Freedom Essay, Schelling uses the term the Ungrund, yeah. which is absolute indifference. And this is a term from Jakob Burma. And that's the copula. That's the is that binds the A and the B, or the X that binds the A and the B, the two predicates. So there's always a third. The third is this dynamic placeholder that allows the predicates to unfold. It's the indifference, that indifference that in German, unbedingt, literally means the unthinged. It's an unthinged, it's an undifferentiated relational potency. So that allows for difference and relation and all of these things to unfold. So he's really playing... Oh my God, I'm again seeing another another connection. You know where Deleuze starts talking about transcendental empiricism? Yeah. And the reason why he likes that term is the paradox between transcendence and empiricism, the transcendental. Yeah. And then he talks about this line between the zeros. It's exactly the same thing. There's this boundary of the paradox between the unconditioned and the conditioned. And because we can never cognize that first ancestral event, what we're left with is the emergence of these forces that are unraveling and that are still kind of held together by this abyss of reason or this Ungrund or this Godhead. And as Simon Dunn said, this uber what did he call it? He called it the Uber-Gottheit? Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing. It's a beautiful line. So it is that. The Godhead is this kind of creative principle that's 
allowing for the potencies or the the rotary motion to unfold. But we have to really think of there's a difference because later on the text, he starts talking about eternal being and the eternal what is. That's pure identity. So that's the outline of the circle. But right. the inside of the circle would be being and what it. I'm sorry if I'm I'm complicating this. No, I no, no, no. I, I, you're not. Actually, Cooper and I were talking about this last night a little. <laughs> exactly. Bit. When I tried to use Zizek's discussion of the phallus as the empty sign, as the empty signifier. Yes. And, and I was trying to say that perhaps, you know, thinking through Deleuze, Schelling, this question of the differential that the phallus is the empty signifier would be the bar, if you will, that allows mm -hmm. for dy, dx to differentiate. And so you're, you're actually kind of, and again, I don't want to necessarily call this is maybe why I was saying God was this empty signifier in Lacanese, as Zizek speaks, you know, and, and Zizek speak, you know, to stick with Simon Dome too, would be this means by which metastability can allow two, at least two orders of magnitude to kind of create a, a disparation, as he calls it, right? A disparate resolution and resonance because you, the way you were describing the seed in terms of shelling reminded me of how Simondon describes the crystal right because a crystal yes. a crystalline germ without a mother lick mother liquor without some kind of surrounding milieu to annex and to to feed off of would remain dormant just like the seed as you as you said it takes a kind of um yeah, I mean, it, it takes a solution in which to, to be immersed. It takes some sort of stimuli, as you, well, as you mentioned. I feel like yeah. time, and, time and motion here are the kind of unspoken terms, perhaps. This, Maybe this, this would go to like the, mm -hmm. the Deleuze uh, cinema, like the time image and movement image here. But I, I don't know. That's just kind of what I was picking up on. I don't know if that has any actual relevance. It's so funny because... My favorite part of the cinema books are when Deleuze is talking about montage from film noir, where it's, you know, situation, action, situation, or ASA. And then after World War II, when we become fragmented and we no longer believe in the world, that situation, action is severed. And it's so mm. funny that the same thing happens in Schelling. There's a trauma that happens that allows for personality to kind of emerge. Schelling mm. calls it personality. He hates the word subjectivity. He'll talk about subject and object as predicates, but he thinks the personal is a lot different. It's more than just one force. But no, mm. you're, you're totally right here. And there is a very fine line between the emergent of time in the circle and eternity outside of the circle, right? So there's this kind of play on the paradox that's so great. I forgot the Ryman example of the dy and the dx. I'm totally getting that wrong, probably. No, you're um, not. But you're right. You're right. Absolutely. So that's what he's playing on. I'm so glad to talk to you guys about this. It's great. <laughs> no, no, no. This is good because, too, when you brought up, when Deleuze describes red and the, and the different intensities of red as a differential, we talked to Simon Duffy about this because... Maimon brings up this kind of example. Yeah. And so it's interesting too that you also see Schelling working through the differential, maybe not as directly mathematically, but still in his own way, weaving in this. Um, and, and obviously this points back to what Coop said about, about sort of it being a, uh, inheriting some of Leibniz's, maybe not terminology, but at least like the is. paradigm of thought, perhaps, I think. Yeah, yeah the paradigm, the, maybe some of the theodicy, if you will. Yeah, um, too, yeah. it, no, for sure. So this, yes, let's say it's a theodicy without the inherent morality, right? Like without yeah. the whole harmoniousness, right? Like Schelling realizes 
Yes, you know, at the end of the Freedom Essay, love conquers all. This is why I always call, this is why I call Interstellar a Schillingian movie, because love conquers all. That's wonderful. Love is not spatial. Love is just like cosmic. It's so funny. But yeah, in a sense, that's the kind of the heartbeat of the the film. And uh, yeah, it's it's so true. So I'm seeing a lot more connections. But this actually kind of gets to, and Coop has it here, the death drive in Schelling. One of the ways well, that... If you don't mind, I just want to bump in real quick, but just to before we move on, because something Christopher said that I thought was kind of interesting was to go back to the sort of dice throw from Deleuze. What I think is kind of interesting, and this even could be metaphor for like the seed example too, is that, okay, so the potentialities of the die, the six types of rolls you can get on a single right. die, all those potentials are there. I like this idea of even expanding that out, like the notion of the color spectrum, which I guess would be energy itself or like electromagnetism or mm-hmm. would have you right. That, would be. that yeah. spectrum of Roji Biv, those eight potentialities are available. Those are available to be actualized. What's interesting, though, on top of that is that not only do you have the ability to actualize any variation of those eight colors, it's also the intensity of then you can have a sub intensity of each different type of color mm-hmm. that gets reflected mm-hmm. back. I don't know if that is necessarily relevant to shelling, but I don't know. That just kind of, I thought that was a, very, a way to sort of make that a more elegant example of yeah. how maybe Deleuze thinks about difference, but I don't know. <laughs> no, they, they're both, they both have a kind of organic understanding of continuum, right? So it's not a blending, but it is a, it's an unfolding, right? It's an unfolding of each degree, right? Like when Deleuze talks about the degrees of redness, yeah. it literally means like each pixel is its own entity unfolding in this in this pixelation. Now, even the word pixel and pixelation, right? Or I don't even know if that's a word, but yeah, it is. You know, even at the middle, right? Like Deleuze always talks about the middle or mm-hmm. you know the, the folds of lines and stuff like that. So there's all of this. You both are are hitting all the marks. So you're doing very very well. <laughs> this is, actually, this is one of the the best conversations I've had about the ages of the world. Maybe the background to reading Schelling is Deleuze. So there yeah, you I mean, go. Maybe. It's possible. I know that we really haven't. A lot of the time when we discuss text, we try not to necessarily dive into exegesis. But it, mm-hmm. I think that talking about these things in broad terms, which is perhaps the one merit of Zizek's, sometimes not even talking about she- talking about Schelling by talking about Hegel or talking about Lacan. Maybe I mentioned this to you, but Zizek's book, Organs Without Bodies, on Deleuze, it's like 20 pages on Deleuze and then 200 pages on Hegel. And I always thought of it as a joke, right? That, you know, I'm going to write, a, I'm going to talk about Deleuze, but actually you're getting Hegel and that's the joke that actually Deleuze is Hegel or something like this, right? Some kind of buggery. But I've also talked to um, some of my Slovenian friends who kind of mentioned that this is known in those circles. And again, this is just opinion and anecdote, but this is known in Slovenian circles as one of Zizek's worst books, that it wasn't a joke, it was meant seriously, and that it was taken quite poorly, if you will. Again, this is just an opinion that I've heard from, I won't name names, but, (laughs) but the point being, there is a lot of that introduction to this work by Schelling that isn't about Schelling. And yet, at, at the same time, you can see little parts of it that that allow for a way of maybe getting into the text that sometimes feels like it, there is a barrier to sort of understanding what Schelling's doing. And so one of the things that I thought was interesting about 
the way that Zizek talked about the death drive very briefly was this fact that, you know, Eros and Thanatos and in Freud's terms, for example, that Eros is constantly kind of trying to, if you will, expand and unite and build and death drive or Thanatos is actually trying to like end that ceaseless surplus. I'm kind of wondering about this with with your point about love conquering all. Is there a place for this process to perhaps lapse back in on itself or is there is yes. is that is that the force of wrath or am i simplifying too much i feel like i am no no but um just if you don't mind i'm just going to give um a little background to the freedom essay because there's more about yeah. the freedom essay and this has a lot to do with the kabbalah elements that are in inherent in Yakub burma and of course zizek doesn't like this element of it like this is why zizek relates it to the death drive, it relates it to the unconscious, and that's fine. But really, essentially what's going on is this. The creation of God as a macro event, the same creation that's going on with God is going to also happen with the human. So it's it's interesting. There's a macro and a micro level going on here. So what happens is, is that God negates himself. So the Godhead, or the Ungrund, negates itself. It contracts inward on itself, just like the seed. And what happens is, out of that... A receptacle comes. So this is straight out of Kabbalah. This is mm -hmm. the Zimzum. Okay. And out of this space of nothingness, the receptacle is formed where prima materia, so prime matter, primordial matter emerges in this space now that God has created, this ground. And at the same time, the ground doesn't have any principles. It doesn't have any of God's essence, right? It's just mm -hmm. darkness, sheer darkness, sheer egoity. It wants its own interiority like the seed. It wants to live for eternality. It craves to be back with God at the same time. So it, it is God, but it isn't God. So here again, Lacan, right? We have the mirror stage where the young child is looking into the mirror and seeing, you know, this is me adding to the mirror stage, I'm sorry, <laughs> before language. And you notice how like when a child looks in the mirror because they can't see their own face or anything, they see the gestures of the mirror. The mirror gives content to this individual, right? Yeah, in unity. Same, yeah. We have the same kind of thing going on. And actually, this is where I'll get there in a second. There's a lot of stuff to unpack here. So this ground, which is part of, you know, it's part of God's receptacle now in time. Well, God's this, you know, outline. He's in the, the outline of the circle. If we go back to the circle example, what's going on is this blind drive, this blind craving that wants to go back to the one, but it can't, right? It's been negated. Half of this pomp has been removed. And he's really using these kind of alchemical terms. Same with Shelling too. He literally means this negation into itself, this contraction into itself. It's like pulling stuff out into a space. So it's half, so it's co-eternal with it. And this is why we're always linked to this absolute identity. So there's no word there. There's no reason there. It's the unreason, which Helling will say, the darkness that comes before the light. It's gravity before light. It's wrathfulness before love. Because what is wrathfulness? You're so absorbed in your own self that you need to consume and drag everything into you. Yeah. So what happens is, is that the word is put in. So just like in Macan, when language forms, it's you may have to help me here. It's been a while since I've read Macan. Okay. But when language happens, when language is formed in the child, it's a little better, right? The stages are, I think the child starts mimicking certain things. Am I right or am I wrong? When we sort of enter 
language by stages, as you kind of already said. There's a sense in which the child is born without without an unconscious, without an ego, without the, all these things. But it's when we sort of enter into language, we enter into law, the big other, we, we sort of, this is the state of castration and all of these things. I mean, obviously moving very quickly and sort of just summarizing, but it's that, I guess it's that entering into the domain of law. There, I mean, she talks about this a little bit, right? Where right. we're Schelling's three fragments or three versions of the ages of the world sort of deal with this tension between law and love, not to bring right. in another dichotomy, between, you know, no, no. we were talking about law and wrath, or love and wrath, but now this question of how the second tries to move beyond law or something. I, I, want, to get there. Yeah. I want to get there in one second. There's a Bible passage in this text, okay, from Proverbs 8, 23 to 31. And in this passage, it's my favorite passage, the divine feminine, Sophia, helps God, who's unconscious, God, mm -hmm. the creator, the Godhead, is unconscious, fills in the content of God. So mm. Sophia, the divine feminine, says, I was there when, when the horizons were formed. I was there when the oceans were filled. I was there when humankind was created. Schelling's playing on this as well. He doesn't really mean that. He's talking about this unconscious ground that's yearning to, to be knowledgeable. And so it's Sophia is this mirror of consciousness. She's the one that allows content and form to come together. And so reason or language, when it becomes part of the ground, the ground now is able to articulate its desires. It's mm. able to articulate its loneliness, its, its wrathfulness. It's, there's no love yet. There's no love yet. <laughs> So what appears first is the first stirrings of existence, of divine mm. existence. But as it starts building, when there's this pull between, as you said, when one conquers the other. So what, what's going on is there's a kind of decision, a decision to split. Same thing in Burma. And notice in German, the word is Entscheidung. If you remove the ENT and you have Scheidung, you have scission. So mm -hmm. in a decision, there's a decision between two things. Yeah. So what happens is, is that Schelling calls evil egoism, which is, you know, pure self-absorbedness, -absorb pure drive, pure, you know, putting yourself before others. And ipsity, individuality, is a balance of the center. It's allowing the flow of movement and allowing to ground one of the principles. So there is this moment of becoming, this moment where the ground kind of, or we become, we decide in a sense on these two characteristics. We decide between the two of them in the freedom essay. So it's kind of like each individual, each personal individual looks at themselves at this point and decides whether they want to be at the periphery allowing the flow of wrath to overtake the love principle or going to the center where there's balance, where there's movement, right? So if you think of if there's balance, if we're centered, then they can flow around like a rotary position. But if you flow to the periphery, one gets blocked and it needs to be overcome. What's going on in this kind of dynamic pull and push is that what he's trying to say is, and I'm sorry if I'm being too abstract, when we change as individuals, when we change and something happens to us, we don't realize the change. 
our friends notice the change. Mm -hmm. Change occurs and it occurs inside us, not outside. Something takes over us. And this is what Shaolin is trying to get at. When this moment of evil or this moment of character is absorbed or overcome, these moods take us over, the same thing happens. We flee to the periphery and we're blocked until we need to overcome this, this moment. So it's, it's oddly existential as well, too. He's mm -hmm. talking about the character traits of, of this. But everything, everything comes back to this unconscious play of these forces. That, and this is why the dark principle and wrath is always in all individuals, all beings, even nature. Nature has it as well, too, because it started off as this cell of this ground that was desiring and wanting, and it needed reason or language to express this, and it needed a balance of it. And so Schelling will say it's the word, right? It's the word or, you know, from the Bible or whatever, and that it needs to be incarnated in Jesus. But if you don't want to read the Christianity in it, which I don't tend to do, I don't tend right. to do that, what it's showing is that a person is born with these forces, just like the seed. It has the potential to grow into a plant, but it also has the potential to get to gain a disease. It has the potential to become sick. And all of these potentials, these forces, affect the character and the personality or the difference of each individual. And so there's a constant struggle. And what Zizek likes about this is that we're born into these drives. We're born into these kind of this cycle of drives that you can never get out of. The rotary position. It's there. It's primordial. It's cosmic is mm. what he's getting at. And the brilliance of this is, is that we are stuck in this cycle. There's no way of getting out of it. So it is a theodicy in a sense, but it's also not naive that, you know, everything's great in the end. Right. No, there is suffering. There is contradiction. And we need to, we need to suffer in a sense in order to understand this process. Or we would, you know, I don't know if that makes any sense, but... I think it does. Time is the fire in which we burn. That would probably <laughs> perfect. Be. Perfect. Yeah, no, perfect. I don't think that time could quite be the ground, but it almost seems like it provides the ground for, like I said earlier, kind of like for movement, for change itself. Just to even think back to something like Ligotti's notion of nothing can change outside of time. There are entities that sort of create universes to grow their children in a sense, like they become, like they unfold into these godlike creatures that are, you know, dimensions above our perception. <laughs> but you're right. As God or the unconditioned is creating itself, it creates a boundary around us. So you'll see at the end of the text where he starts talking about the eternal being and then the eternal what is. So right. that's the kind of that's the kind of boundary or the apparon, the the border around the circle, and the other potencies, the love and wrathful principle, the being and what is, are the the encircling circles within it. So you're seeing an entire cosmic emergence going on through the text. Hopefully, I'm doing justice to the text, and I hopefully I'm getting you you interested in the text. I think you are, and I there was something. Uh... Can I just read you one passage? And, yeah, and please, please. So this is a perfect passage. It's a, towards the end. It's got Jakob Burma written all over it. And remember, the unconscious past, it's that moment where the receptacle becomes filled with these, with these emergent properties, it, with prime matter, mm -hmm. prima materia, and concealment or shrouding yourself in, you know, all of these are happening to the Godhead. And uh, there's always this, you know, indifferent principle binding everything together, but allowing for flow. 
So he says on page 179, at the very bottom, a favorite passage of this text, darkness and concealment are the dominant characteristics of primordial time. When time formed, when time became concrete, it was when the receptacle became filled. When the receptacle formed, that's time. There's a difference now between inside the circle and outside the circle, right? Inside the circle's time, outside the circle is eternality. Just like we were talking about Ryman and the DX and the DY, the mm -hmm. paradox between them. So he says, all life first becomes and develops in the night. All life, right, becomes and develops in the ground, in this dark, this dark, desirous ground, this ego, this egotistical essence. The ancients called the night the fertile mother of things, and indeed together with chaos, the oldest of beings. So in the Timaeus, when the Demiurgos is creating the cosmos and ensouling everything, Plato calls it the Grand Artesian. So what Schelling is doing, he's playing on the Timaeus, but he's adding some more dynamic elements to it, some more personal elements, you know, the unconscious, you know, drive, sexuality, personality. And then he says, the deeper we return into the past, the more we find the unmoving rest, indistinction and indifference, coexistence of the very forces though gentle at the beginning, flare up later into even more turbulent struggle. The mountains of the primordial world seem to look down upon the animated life at their feet with eternally mute indifference, and likewise with the oldest formations of the human spirit. So everything is churning and forming at the same time, the macro and the micro, and each is becoming, in a sense. Each is overcoming this struggle of the principles. Even the cosmos, right? The cosmos is being formed in this receptacle, in this ground, and it's going through these two principles, real and ideal, and it's being stretched between them in a sense. Does that make sense? I think that what's interesting is this sort of notion that before time was formed, that time arises out of eternity, rather than eternity being what Hegel might call the bad infinite, which is just a series right. of integers added up together, where if you took time and sort of, you know, you go from zero to, to infinity or to just the boundaries, that for Schelling, that's the same way. That's not a good way to think of it, that eternity is that primordial, you know, rotary drive that you mentioned, and it's out of that sort of conflict of forces that then time appears rather than sort of eternity appearing at the end it is even before the beginning because the beginning itself sort of retrojects eternity back as what Zizek was calling the unconscious right this past that has never passed if you will it's this primordial past that i don't want to call it the you know the ground or the abyss or whatever you know just a confused terminology but it is it, but but I, I found that interesting right rather than eternity being at the end or being a teleological or totalizing unity it is this before time that is also i know here he says above time or he talks about above time but it's kind of like not even beneath time it's just it's not even in a certain sense in time like time is is outside of it. I think that's counterintuitive to the to the just the the connotation of eternity as the totality of all time. When he says 
at the beginning of the text, the past is known, the present is recognized, the future is divine. What is known is recounted, what is recognized is presented, what is divine is prophesied. And then he says, science, by the so Wissenschaft, mm-hmm. he's talking about the Geisteswissenschaft, so the human sciences, is history. But not history in an Aristotelian sense, where we have a succession of events, right. so-called linked. What we have is an organic continuum, right? A process. And we have this unfolding, this moment where the border or the aperon, the the indifference or the uncondition, yeah. which is this, you know, the unlimited. Unre- yeah, this mm. unlimited relational entity is building this border around what time is going to unfold in this receptacle. And so we have this. This connection between time and the middle in this, you know, circling and circling and circling. And then we have this eternal kind of boundary. And so he's playing on this. He's playing on everything. So there's Mm -hmm. so much, you know, opposites are linked. They're not identical, but they're always continuously unfolding. So while one is unfolding, one is enfolding. And we have this contractive and expansive process and attraction as well, which is the third, which, you know, is attracting things together, pulling things together. I don't know if I answered your question. I think I'm just... I guess I didn't have a question. I was I was kind of reflecting on, on the passages that you just read, and I was kind of thinking about how, you know, this vision of what he calls eternity is counter to what one would perhaps just think in everyday terms. And I suppose because we've kind of gone through some of some of the terminology and maybe step back and sort of ask a bigger question. I know Zizek mentions, but doesn't really get to it. I'm wondering what your opinion is on perhaps why Schelling, well, first of all, the three versions of this text that we have only consider the past, right? This supposedly there were supposed to be three parts, as you mentioned, one on the past, the present, and the future. Do you have any opinions or maybe even scholarly informed ideas about why Schelling abandoned this project or didn't see it through? Was there something perhaps that he, because I know Schelling kind of, or Zizek talks about the early, middle, late Schelling. So do you think that there was something that uh, that didn't quite work for him in terms of abandoning this project? I'm really glad you asked that because this is what my dissertation's on actually. Oh, okay, good. So number one, there's four drafts of it. There's an 1818 draft that nobody cites because we only have 10 to 12 sheets. So mm. it is speculated that Schelling wrote 20 versions of this. Wow. But we lost, but we lost it all in the 1944 bombing raid mm. in Munich. I'm oh, sorry, in Berlin, sorry. So this is how I divide them up. I was actually presenting a paper on this at the North American Schelling Society, and I was speaking to a gentleman named Philip Hoffel, who uh, also loves the ages of the world, and we were talking about what we like about it. And I said this to him and he, and he agreed. He said, so for me, the 1811 and the 1813, okay, so the 1811 is just maybe 30 more pages than the one that we read, the second draft. Is that the first draft, quote unquote, the yeah, 1811? So the, so the 1811 draft, I have it right here. So this draft here, which ha- actually has chapters in it, there's chapters on pantheism, there's chapters on so it's very tragic. It's almost written like a myth, a mythology in a sense, which he returns to later in his yes. last work, The Philosophy of Mythology. Now, the reason why Zizek likes this is because it's very personable. It starts talking about how the cosmic 
is then reflected into the individual, the personal. And there's so much more on the drives. It's tailored to his psychoanalytic and dialectical materialist penchant, if you will. Yes. And uh, the 1815, which we've always had, for me, is different because, you see, Schelling was trying to create a new system. Mm, He was trying mm. to reflect on a new metaphysics. And he did this later in his philosophy of revelation. I'm going to read you just the link. I'm going to show you what happened. Now, Schelling's son, Carl, only published the 1815 version because it was the longest. The third edition, which the I third, think that the, was translated very quickly, right? I mean, it's it's been around it in English for a long time, as at least as I saw. Now, the 1811 draft, the first draft, the interesting thing about it is that what they did was they added all of the notes. They added all of Schelling's notes and extra drafts that are really, really interesting so you can read it. It's fascinating. But in the philosophy of Revelation, which for me is the culmination of the ages, like he mm. finishes the ages in his final project called the philosophy of Revelation. And listen what he says here. This is actually how, <laughs> this is how I start my dissertation off. He says, is well advised to first conclude on the past. The positive philosophy is a future for the now largely prevailing philosophical consciousness. So the ages of the world starts off as a philosophical text on the unconscious cosmos mm -hmm. that's unfolding. And it's always called a failure because he never finished it. But really what I think happened was when he realized that the past is this cosmological beginning, but now we have to talk about, we have to talk more about a systematic way of understanding it. He makes this concept called the unprethinkable, which I brought up before, this uncognizable entity at the beginning because it's an ancestral event. And so what he does in this text, the philosophy of revelation, I don't want to talk too much about text, is he, he fixes the potencies. He kind mm -hmm. of reflects on the potencies, the powers about how the cosmos unfolds, and he gives more detailed into the unconscious, this unprethinkable kind of creative elan mm -hmm. that helps, let's say, flush out the personal and everything else. You know, the one thing about the ages that I like so much, the more that the James Webb satellite takes images of the cosmos and we're starting to realize that there may be more of the picture than just the Big Bang and there's so much more. I think Schelling is really, really important to return to now. The one thing that I disagree with between the, the flux of philosophy and science is that I think that as Deleuze says to Philosophers and science scientists should be working together for life. They should be helping each other out. This may not be the right project. It may be wrong, but at least it can help people reflect on how things unfolded, both cosmologically, theologically, and existentially, when, when it comes to our own human being and our world and our reality. And so for me, it's not a failed project because he ends, he fixes it all. He kind of completes it in his late lectures in Berlin which all together are, you know, they sum up 900 pages. It's a massive project. <laughs> yeah. It's just a huge project. But um, he, be he was attacked so much for the freedom essay that he kind of became a hermit. So he taught in Munich for a long, long time and then went to Berlin after. But I think he was really kind of fearful of publishing again because what he had been yelled out of Bavaria by the Catholics. The Catholics hated him. He was a Protestant boy, you know, talking about the ages of the world, the system of the ages of the world, are his lectures from Erlangen and to Munich. 
and people did not like this. He would have constant scenes where people would emerge into his classroom and just shout him down, and he would just be like, oh, God. Just like Deleuze, too. Deleuze had the same thing happen to him as well, too. I mean, yeah, Badu was was one of the antagonists, right? So uh, yeah, that, that is interesting, though, about how much... I mean, I suppose this is it's back to the, the question about the status of God. I mean, I, I suppose that would be one of the things that the Catholics would not have liked about what he was doing was, in a way, I mean, I suppose that by philosophically ruminating on God in a way that perhaps is counter to a scriptural fundamentalist reading of texts or for Catholics, I, I guess the whatever doctrine would be established. I suppose that that would, I guess he's not the only one though. You can think of Spinoza is just an easy example Absolutely. of another thinker who is, who is thinking about God in a way that isn't the same as Schelling, but still has heretical, I mean, not for me, but for the powers that be, right? Has heretical overtones. And Schelling was a Spinozist for a very long time. He actually... Interesting. I'll tell you something funny, okay? You ready for this? I should have said this at the beginning of the podcast. Here's Schelling and here's Spinoza. What's Spinoza's system? Substance. What is substance? Well, substance is one substance that, that is in itself and through itself. It has an infinite amount of attributes and it's got modes. And it's also natura, naturans, and natura, naturata. Now, what's Schelling's system? Instead of Deo Siva Natura, it's Deo Siva Vernuft. So God is reason. Right. Right. And instead of Natura Naturans, we have being. And instead of Natura Naturata, we have what is. Mm. So he's just kind of made Spinoza a little more organic. Yeah. Kind of spiritualized it, made it a little more non-deterministic, right? A little more expressive. Okay. Expressive. Okay. That's ironic considering Deleuze's book on Spinoza and, right. the pro- and the problem of expression and how even if it's not a concept for Spinoza, it's an interesting way of trying to understand how substance is expressed through the modes, etc. And so I wonder, I wondered about this too, where the translator has a note in the version that we read for today about what the expressing, the expressible yes. and the expressed. Is there something similar going on here with Schelling? This question, I mean, obviously this relates back to the word as you mentioned it, but is there something about, let's just say the advent of the expressing this, this sort of event, if you will, or advent of the expressed, expressing, et cetera. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, as he says, expression, so the expressing, is the expressing of the one, not the one like in Plato or Plotinus or any kind mm-hmm. of Neoplatonic structure. It's the unconditioned. It can gotcha. express okay. this unconditioned, right? Now, the expressible is the virtual. It's the potential. And okay. it's the potential. The potential is the expressible. It can ex- express these predicates or express these acts of being or these ways of these modes of being. Let's gotcha. use Spinoza's term. Sure. And then <laughs> there's the express where one of the modes or one of the predicates grounds the other. Mm, okay. Right? So love and wrath, right? And they kind of flip higher and lower. There are three ways. Those three ways are the three potencies. So there's the expressing, the expressible, and the expressed, all in this, these structures. So in, in Schelling's nature philosophy, 
he calls the unconditioned absolute productivity. And what is absolute productivity? It's this flow, right? Like a, like a river in a sense. And how do products form out of productivity? There's inhibition. And what's it called? And, and Zizek in his text calls it anstos, the fiction yeah. anstos, inhibition. Right. So when inhibition happens, when there's an obstacle, a product is formed out of this productivity. Notice they still have the same essence in the sense that they, they share the same univocity of being or the, mm-hmm. the entity of identity from the unconditioned, if they're still different and they, they are now, they're expressed as yeah. opposed to expressible or expression. Right, right. Of, right. He really means that it's like two sides of a coin. Being and what is are two sides of the coin. And the third is the coin itself, the whole coin, let's say. Right. Use it that way. But when one is expressed, you can only see heads. Yeah. As opposed to tails. And the mode of the expressible would be like flipping the coin and having it spinning and spinning around. You don't know which you're going to get. They're infinitely just spinning. There's this potential for whatever to, to be individuated or to be expressed. This is making me think about the way that you're formulating it. And I, I don't know if you're doing it consciously or unconsciously, or maybe this is my reading. <laughs> you're making me think about the way that Deleuze talks about intensive difference and its explication. Yes. Right? There's a way in which quality explicates these intensive differences. There's something very similar going on. And so I, I can see why he would praise Schelling for, in say, the, the different potencies of already formulating a kind of principle of differentiation. Absolutely. I think you're spot on there, especially that the fact that you talked about the qualitative. Is that like yeah. kind of what I was getting at with the intensities of the colors? I think so. Taylor, like I yeah. kind of feel like maybe we're on the same page there. I think that's what you were you were explicating. I, yeah, I was kind of try, <laughs> trying to communicate. I think you did it a little better, yeah. I was just using Deleuzean terminology. But yeah, <laughs> if, if we go back to your, your analogy of the light spectrum, you're right. There is a sense in which uh, white light, for example, and, and Deleuze himself uses that that yeah. terminology of the white light being sort of qualitatively expressible to use, you know, or (laughs) being able to be explicated in these different wavelengths. So I think that you're actually, without knowing it, you're actually using an example that Deleuze uses throughout a difference of repetition. If I remember correctly, Christopher, right? right? He he talks about even, he talks about um, problems and their solutions in these terms. Like he'll even talk about white as being sort of, the way in which problems can be uh, determined and determinable yeah. in these different cases of solution. Light would be the ground for these possibilities yes. of Actually, expression. The I funny, guess. the funny thing. Oh my god, I'm thinking even more. I just re- <laughs> I'm realizing even more more um, connections. When Deleuze talks about how white is in every color, yes, and black is the absence of color. It's so funny because. White would be like the identity principle. The un, it would be the unconditioned, mm-hmm. while all yeah. the other colors are now unfolding. Right? Yes, this is totally acceptable to talk about it. Schelling will never say. I mean, in the nature philosophy, he does bring up the words intensity and extensity, but I think he likes this idea of it's a drama of powers, it's a drama of forces, and he'll always say he'll always talk about how he's known for saying that nature is visible spirit. Spirit is invisible nature. They mimic each other. There's no subject and object. They're dynamically linked, like your two hands, as I was saying before, Mm -hmm. left and right. And the same processes are happening. Like 
but just there is this interdynamic there's a kind of internal dynamic between the real and the ideal yeah. and this is always through him just like Deleuze the virtual and the actual yeah and now I feel bad because you all wanted to take a little break from Deleuze and the whole <laughs> it just shows how much we've tried to delve into some of Deleuze's work recently. And so I do apologize to the listener if they're getting tired of hearing Deleuze. It's good to try to unravel some of Schelling's terminology or any philosopher's terminology and sort of get them resonating and interacting with not just examples, but other thinkers, other terms, kind of like lubricating the the conceptual you know, network of, of ideas, it does help to sort of bring some of these things out when we're able to more or less transform and translate these systems and these terms in a way that gets them interacting. I, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. And that's just part of the, I mean, that's just part of the history of philosophy, right? It's sort of, yeah. it's painting this portrait with these different, uh, these different hues. So Schelling will actually say that, um, each entity has its own freedom. So he gives this example of the human body. And he says, you know, it's so funny that the eye can get sick, like the eye can get pink eye. But Ooh. when you have pink <laughs> eye, it's not like you, your mouth is sick or your hand, but there is some, some differential aspect there that's going on. Or even when you have an earache, right, your whole body's not sick, just your ear is affected by something. So it's got this freedom to contract you know, contract illness out of its freedom, right. its free action. So every entity has a free mode of expressivity. This is something that he'll always say that freedom is the alpha and the omega of philosophy. So he really is a, a philosopher of freedom, actually. And he's trying to show that even at the molecular level, the cosmic level, there is still this mode of freedom through these plays of forces, the contractive and the expansive. By the way, I feel bad, like I kind of rushed over the the death drive i'm sorry we actually kind of talked about it in a certain way i have a passage i could read that i thought this is the one passage where it, I, to me it jumped out yeah go for it sure go ahead be, yeah be a good way great. to there is a question that gets raised in childhood but grows tiring in mature age where has everything come from but where everything has come from can be nowhere else than where everything is still coming from and where everything is going back to and which was thus not only before time but is still in every moment constantly above time for these reasons as well, the immovable will that wills nothing is first and highest. For the will that wills nothing always penetrates to the greatest turmoils of life and the most violent movement of all forces. Everything aims for it. Everything longs for it. Every creative thing, every man in particular strives in truth only to return to the condition of non-willing. Not only he who strips himself away from all desirable things, but though unknowingly, he also he abandons himself to all desires. For this man, too, desires only the state in which he has nothing more to wish for, nothing more to want, even if that state retreats immediately from him, and the more zealously he pursues, the further away it is. Beautiful passage. And notice, the will that wills nothing is always linked with the contractive principle. So that's mm -hmm. the, the wrathful principle. That's darkness. And that's also egoity. That's the darkness of the ground. That dark kind of... In the Freedom Essay, he calls it a, he says, I'm sorry to jump texts here, but this is just, this is beautiful. And it also brings up what we've been talking about. He says, thus we must imagine the original yearning, right? So this is this, this dark kind of receptacle as it directs itself to the understanding, though still not recognizing it, just as we in our yearning seek out 
an unknown and nameless good as it moves divining itself like a wave-wound whirling sea akin to Plato's matter, following dark, uncertain laws, incapable of constructing for itself anything enduring. But corresponding to the yearning, which is still the dark ground, is the first stirrings of an inner reflective representation that is generated in God himself, through which, since we have no other object but God, God sees himself in an exact image of himself. And this representation is the first in which God, considered as absolute, is realized, although only in himself. The representations is with God in the beginning and is God who is begotten in God himself. So just like the passage that you brought up, Cooper, or Coop, sorry. Um, it's the <laughs> same. It's the same empty moment of yearning. This decentered kind of dark, undulating sea of prime matter that is just all it wants to consume. It wants to, you know, it wants to sabotage itself by being this endless cycle of just desiring and desiring, 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 and it's got no. It has no essence of reason. It's the unreason. It's the you know, it's this principle that just wants to make everything into its own self. It's just contractive, and there's no end to its craving. I also had a, a passage, and then we can discuss maybe all of these these passages together. This is Simon Don talking about Schelling, again, from the history of the notion of the individual, which is part two of individuation in light of notions of form and information. He says, nevertheless, Schelling does not limit the application of his method to the grasping of individual beings. He wants to conserve the quote-unquote continuity of forms also for the powers of nature and spirit. Thus, nature under its real and objective aspect is cohesion, under its ideal aspect is light, and as identity is gravity suffused with light or organism. But the singularity of individual beings disappears in the dispersal of identity. Their distinction, their will, their morality cannot be conserved. Already in Philosophy and Religion, 1804, Schelling acknowledged that finite being, unable to arise from the absolute, which remains in itself, must posit itself through an entirely free act, analogous to that which Plotinus lent to the souls that want to live for themselves and to detach themselves from the world soul. Like Burma and Eckhart, Schelling, wanting to make room for individual beings... <laughs> is forced to resort to a mystical drama. In the beginning, this drama involves the existence of a non-individualized ground, a groomed, without light or consciousness, empty and poor desire. But Schelling is then, in fact, forced to introduce an already individualized being. And this is Simon Dunn's just, because he has to come back to, you know, individuals. Schelling is forced to introduce an already individualized being. This is the spirit of God moved by love, which links the understanding to desire, pregnant with all the forms of existence and becoming the creative will of nature. This is cosmogonic becoming. Man is yes. found at its culminating point. I'll finish here. In the natural being, each being's own will remains united with the universal will. In man, this will wants to exist by itself and become its universe to itself. Man consequently closes himself off from universal love. Theogonic becoming or the return to God begins with the fall of man. It is only in God that the foundation is immediately connected with existence. Outside it, the foundation only reaches existence through the intermediary of nature and history. There is consequently a sin in the individuality that wants to be complete and absolute. Only man realizes complete individuality. He realizes it in sin. This moment of complete individuality is therefore integrated into the totality of drama, of the drama. And then he goes on about God. But I thought that, I thought that, yeah. 
That's beautiful. What is that? I have to read this text now. Oh, my gosh. So this is volume two of uh, Individuation in Light of Notions of Form and Information. And he's got this whole history of the notion of the individual, which starts with the pre-Socratics and goes up to uh, Schelling is actually one of the last. It's the second to last. uh, He ends with Novalis, Holderlin and a geologist named Henrik Steffens. But that's the end. So Schelling is really kind of towards the end and it's not really a critique maybe but it's it's one of his i think simon Doan's interested obviously as the text says in the notion of the individual as it sort of goes throughout the history of thought history of philosophy and i think that his one critique right is that it's interesting that while you do have the sort of non-individualized ground the individuality that interacts with it is the spirit of God, so to speak. Right. right? And I think that that for him is still not getting to a principle of individuation, right? Which is Mm -hmm. what he wants to try to unearth and articulate. But I do think that he sees something obviously more interesting in Schelling than say his thoughts on Hegel or some of these other thinkers that, perhaps aren't as dynamic or processual, if you right. will. Okay, so this is something that Heidegger pointed out that I also think Simone de Nelson picked out. That yes, Schelling is a philosophical Christian. And by philosophical Christian, I don't mean, you know, one of those, he's not evangelical. He is ontotheological. So he's right that God's spirit is kind of the essence of identity. He's not wrong about that. That's totally true. And I think he's totally right about that as well. And what you just summed up is a perfect summation of both the freedom essay and the ages of the world, this constant struggle, that the tragedy, the drama, right? Life is a tragedy. It's a tragedy of these forces. Even to become the individual that we are is hard, right? We become, we are led astray by our own desires. We can be consumed with them where we're so consumed by ourselves that we move to that periphery of that <coughs> dark ground and it's the most primal state of ourselves. So yeah, so you, that passage was beautiful. And I think it was really added well to our discussion. What I also got out from this, his passage, and and I do want to return to, to the, the passage Coop wrote about because I have a I have an interesting question or at least a, a relation to make. But the, what I thought was interesting when... He actually, at the end of his dissertation, the first part of, of the book, Simon Doan writes about ethics, and his main point is, one of the main points he makes about ethics is for not to want, desire, strive to be this absolute, complete individual, that there's something immoral about that. And here he points it out, he finds it in Schelling with his you know, relating back to this question about sin. It's in sin that man microcosmically strives to attain this complete, absolute individuality. And I think that that for Simon Don, that is abstracting from the Christian theological mythos of the fall. He actually extracts a kind of ethical principle for why individuals themselves sort of... um, have to die there's actually something like ethical in it and that's a totally longer story and no but unrelated but that's linked with shelling like shelling calls that the reverse god where Mm. we make the ego the principle as opposed to the center of individuality and what happens is we try to make ourselves like that absolute we try to drag that principle into our center and what happens is we decenter ourselves to the point where 
Now we're the reverse god. We're the rogue monad, as Schelling says later in Interesting. Yeah, in the, the third draft, actually. And so what happens is is that we become so consumed with ourselves. And this is that wrathful moment. This is where we see ourselves as greater and we're we're not able to we're not able to look behind that glass wall yeah. or peer over it. And so in, in Cooper's section where that sort of man desires the state in which he has nothing more to wish for. I wonder, you know, the Nietzschean in me kind of like jumps out and, and wonders if this is too close to kind of Schopenhauer's, his Buddhistic type of willing towards Nirvana. Or is, I mean, because Freud himself too thought of the pleasure principle in some senses as the Nirvana principle, right? Is like total evacuation of excitation. So I'm wondering yeah. if there's something <laughs> that would be the rest, right? Well, that's, yes. that's required the requisite state of rest. So that's kind of what I'm wondering, you know, is this perhaps similar, this striving towards willing nothing? Is he finding this sort of as, as a higher principle for us? Because that's where perhaps I've read too much Nietzsche and think like, Oh no, that's, that's decadence. That's perhaps this will, that's exhaustion, right? That's Schelling wants you to become the last man. No, yeah. no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think the will that wills nothing. So this willing of nothing, it's not a good thing, but at the same time, we can't get rid of our particularity. So there isn't a, you know, there isn't this moment where we get, we get to that, but this also leads to evil, right? Mm. Like evil is not some amoral action for Schelling. It's a character of our personality that is consumed by the fire of the of darkness. Uh, it's consumed by eroticism, right? Mm. Eros. It's assumed by and Thanatos, I guess you could say. And in a sense, it's a death in the sense of killing our true potential, right? So we're trying to make up for lack, this lack of the ground in order to maintain, you know, filling it, filling it, filling it, filling it, filling it. And the end of a fulfillment of desires, which is, it's a paradox because you would never reach that moment of nirvana. You, it's not an emptying out, like in Meister Eckhart's Glasenheit, where you kind of release yourself. This is a point where it's a paradox where you say you're going to get here. You, I only want this cup of coffee, but then you want another cup and then you want another one and then you want another one. And so it's an endless cycle where you deteriorate as an individual. And, you know, Schelling says being is will. Ursein ist wollen in German. Like being is the will. Being is will. Just like in Spinoza, Conatus, the, yeah. self, the striving. Schopenhauer does get a lot from... Schopenhauer does, does get a lot from Schelling, but you know, Schopenhauer know, knew that we couldn't escape from this cycle. And so he also said, you know, music and art was a great way of bringing us back to bringing us back to life. But yeah. you know, funny, Schelling says, you know, sorry to be biblical again. He says that Judas wasn't a sinner because he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was a sinner because he chose egoity. He yeah. chose desire he chose to cut off a side of a cut off a piece of him and only want this endless craving this endless cycle of drives over and over again and so his character his personality his individuality was evil wrathful right. sorry i know that didn't answer your question I'm no sorry. no i mean i i just think that i do think that it gets us back to this this way that zizek brings up the death drive this notion of there being 
this movement to stop Eros and its in its incessant expansion and unifying and and growth. So, but I do think it's interesting that there is a resonance with Freud where it does seem for Schelling that the death drive yes. is this eminent principle where it's eminent to the organism, just to use it again in Schelling's term, to uh, to die in its own way and not by uh, not by necessarily some external force, but there's this imminent death. And Simondon makes a lot out of this where he, he describes this process of uh, what he calls amortization, which is yes. basically as the individual individuates, there are little sort of pieces of, I, I use the word pieces, it's not the word he used, but there are basically little little slices, little quota of quantums of, um, of death. By that, he means sort of, the individual can't individuate incessantly. There are these strata of stability, of yeah. order, that lose that metastable elasticity. And these little deaths kind of weave, weave inside the individual as it individuates. And that's just, I think that's for him, too, correlates with his ethical principle about not wanting to be this absolute complete individual right because that itself is a kind of is a kind of death by other means than this natural quote-unquote process absolutely yeah no that was yeah it's so funny um that simon didn't brought up the 1804 philosophy and religion because that's mm -hmm. really that's where Schelling kind of merges into this cosmic theogonic philosophy gotcha. and it's so funny when the absolute is trying to create you know in this process it makes a copy of itself that's not as perfect. And half the copy is, is separated. And that separated is prime matter. It's, and it's us in nature. But we get entangled with necessity. And so we're always in that drive. Again, there it is. There's that yeah. drive. The one thing I like about this is that it's the fall of humankind, or the fall of all life, in a sense, is, is really mortality. It's not... Adam and Eve ate some apple. We're all in sin. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's a great thing about it. The whole thing is that it's the finality of mortality. I need to bring up Sartre, but you know, Sartre said we're condemned to be free, and that's yes. true. We are condemned to be free, but we're also be we're also condemned to live as well. And this process of living is contradiction and strife and loving and lots of every everything else. We're entangled with necessity because these principles, according to Schelling are cosmic, they're primordial, they're in everything. So the same thing with the tree outside my window right now, there's that potential there as well too. So he's got this kind of like, not very noticeable, but sort of panpsychism going on as well too, that some white Hedians kind of like, that yeah. there is this reason extended into nature and there's this, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going off on tangents. No, no, I mean, you could say it's panpsychism or panentheism, right? But also, you brought up Sartre, and I do remember early on in the text, I'm not exactly sure how he phrases it, but he, he has a way of, of phrasing it that reminded me of Sartre, where he talks about, I forget how he phrases it. He talks about um, perhaps it's existence, perhaps it's being, but there's something that is horrible in being i'm trying to remember it, it kind of when you brought up the tree it reminded me you know in nausea when the, the narrator is is, is touches the tree there's it's there's, nothing. there's too much tree right it's to throw there's something horrible about the yeah. surplus of existence but i'm not exactly yeah. sure how Schelling phrases it. I, as i said i can't 
look at this PDF because it's it's bad. Anyway, there. I'm having such a good time with both of you. you it's <laughs> so much fun, honestly. Awesome. This has been the best podcast I've I've been on. That's awesome. That's Seriously. what we strive for. Good to know. Uh, it's a good formula. If you want, we can start to wrap up. Perhaps you could. If I can't find this, then you know we can. Uh, maybe you can tell us more about what you're uh, what you're working on currently and and where you see your your studies continuing in the future. Yeah. So I'll tell you. I'll tell you something interesting. When the pandemic started, I had noticed that there were not a lot of people that wanted to talk about shelling, and so I wanted to create some form of community or some form of access outlet so I could talk to other Schillingians, other German idealists, and talk about these things, right? And I ended up talking to, actually, believe it or not, lots of Deleuzeans, lots of Whiteheadians, lots of people that wanted to talk about similar things that we're talking about right now. So I realized that the best way to do it was to popularize his philosophies. And that's what I've been doing with my Twitter account. And now with my YouTube account, I've been, I've been actually going through texts and trying to make it more accessible because I really can't stand these YouTube videos where people are just like, I don't like scripted things. I, li- I like live discussion. It's my favorite. Right, yeah. I like a live discussion. It's more organic. It feels like we're back in ancient Greece. You know, the, the, people listening, the people listening are the chorus and they're a part of it. They can write their comments and stuff. It's much better. And so I wanted to create something where there wasn't, you know, there wasn't this element of just forcedness. And my dissertation is literally what we're talking about. It's called Beyond the Abyss of Reason, Shelling and the Unprethinkable. I'm mapping out this process. And for me, what makes this dynamic, so I'm talking about the freedom essay, the ages of the world, and the philosophy of revelation. And I'm talking literally about the revelation of the cosmos. And I'm not making it religious. It's not. It's the revealing of this unfolding process. And so I'm talking about all these texts. And we're kind of, we're moving, we're trying to philosophize that ancestral event, the beginning of all beginnings, and we're talking about this movement and this this dynamism that's in all these principles and properties that are in in all life. So that's what my dissertation is pretty much doing. And that's the title of it, actually, by the way. I do like that, uh, the the unprethinkable. I think that that's fascinating. It makes me think, again, just just because it's obligatory, I suppose, makes me think back of, to Deleuze that for him, which he finds somewhat in Artaud, but we could say it's perhaps in Schelling too, that there is there is an encounter of violence that forces thinking, right? That there is there is some sort of shock that forces us to pose a problem and to think, rather than it being a sort of natural God-given thing. There is a genitality, there, there is a birth of thinking within thought. Yeah, kind of no, a naturalism, I, I guess, too, or like that, a, absolutely. like a naturalism, or like a thinking is not a given. I guess say that in a different way. I think Schelling would agree. Like you know, when Deleuze talks about the agitprop of third world cinema, you know, where there's the people are missing from film. We need this shock to we need this shock to believe in the world again. I think it can be similar in Schelling that Schelling thinks that even writing in this kind of cosmothogonic theogonic way or using kind of theodicy, using the drama of this tragedy, it brings us back to life. It brings us back to philosophy. So it is a philosophy of life and a philosophy of freedom. And what he hated about Hegel was it's so abstract. Yeah. You're talking about the absolute idea and the absolute concept, and you're going through all of these things, but what you're doing is you're forgetting life. This is not a concept of life. 
And uh, he got in a lot of trouble for saying this. He was once arguing with a, a pastor named, sorry, a Catholic priest named Paulus. And um, Paulus said, no, no, no. This is the best of all possible worlds. Leibniz was right. And Schelling said, by you saying that, you yourself have destroyed God's freedom. If you say God necessarily had to create this cosmos, then you've taken away it. You need to make this contingent. So this mimics almost what Mayasu said, like the, yeah. <laughs> the, necessity, the necessity of contingency. So the yeah. whole cosmos is this the necessity of contingency. So you cannot say that. Everything needs to be, you know, we need to be in that moment of the expressible. We can't just talk about it, right? So he almost calls the cosmos an accident, in a sense. Not in what we think, like the accident as in like, it's just an accident. He means literally we cannot assume everything happened for a reason. It's not necessary. So he plays on this, the necessity of contingency. Sorry. No, no. And, and the accident is, is what falls out. This is kind of how Zizek remains Schillingian when he talks about, you know, if all the numbers in the sort of primordial calculations of the world evened out, then there would be no existence, right? That exactly. There is, there is this, I mean, obviously that's the title of his book, this indivisible remainder, right? There mm-hmm. is, but your point being that it's not an accident in the sense in which it's a mistake, which maybe is a pessimistic way of looking at it. It gets to your point, your anecdote about what Schilling says to the priest. There is, this gets back to this this moment of decision of the splitting off that is a activity of the will and is a free choice insofar yes. as what insofar as there is this, I suppose my question would be if we can end on this note, but this is a big question. Is there in this willingness to know itself, whether it be God or the ground, I'm not exactly sure how to attribute it. Is this a part of increasing potency insofar as it's kind of uh, we don't know what a body can do taken to its nth power we don't know what god can do taken to its nth power it is the striving towards towards higher potency or is that to attribute to god an imperfection that perhaps Schelling wouldn't necessarily like i guess that would be the question is is there something extimate that's sort of more god in god than than uh, well, I guess that's that's a theological question. Is there is there a way for God to increase his own power, right, in this primordial striving or moving? No, it would be it would be about us. It would be how we increase our own power, our mm-hmm. own personality, and our own individual freedom. I like that. And it would be and it's the force of the decision. Mm-hmm. Right? The tragic right, the tragic is an act of inhibition, the anstos. It enables us to act. As he says, contradiction enables us to act, makes us to move. It's not so much this sovereign theology that stands over us. It really is kind of like an organic process. And that we as individuals, you can still be a shitty person and desire and desire and desire and you're still free. But, you know, that in the end will lead to your own. That's futile in a sense. But he won't say that. He wants you. He and this is why he, he calls it die Abgrund der Freiheit, the, the abyss of freedom. So freedom is born out of this abyss, and it's this abyss of this tragedy is this is the cycle of, of what we human beings are a part of. So I guess you could say it, it is that I empowering or enacting or or creating. It would be creating. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. would be all about creating. 
I like that. And I also liked the, I appreciated when Zizek got a little etymological about the Anstas, right? Because it's yes. both, it's both an obstacle and a stimulus, right? Yes. And I think that that gets to the heart of one of Schelling's ways of describing contradiction is not something wherein there is, as you mentioned earlier, the sublation where there is this higher synthesis or something, but that the contradictions never resolve, right? And that that's, that's part of the struggle, but that's also part of the will to create, the will to go further, the will to, it sort of increases our power in a certain way by resisting. The same way the lifting weights, right? How else is one going to increase one's potentiality without that, without the, the resistance against one's muscles or forces? To relate it back to Deleuze, like to be one individual is to, is to kill yourself, right? Is to, <laughs> in a funny manner, to excise all of these larval cells is to yeah. destroy your your true, right? That is who you are. You are these, that what is the body without organs, but this potential, this endless potentiality of virtual selves, larval selves ready to become actualized and intensive. So the minute we do that is that's it. Like that's, if you become an individual and this is why there's no subject object, it's a dissenter. This is why he loved Francis Bacon. What is mm. Bacon? And it's funny because Bacon's, Bacon always put a human character in a geometrical shape. Like if you look at Vasquez's um, hopes, he's always in a square and he's screaming and you're supposed to look for the affect. I think the same thing can be applied. The same thing can be applied as well with Schelling in that we're not meant to be these, you know, square, square off, you know, perfect cut individuals that, get to this point of absolute knowing at the end of phenomenology of spirit. No, that's not what happens. Schelling says profoundly that even melancholia covers nature. So there is this element of, of strife and darkness in all life. And it's a matter of going through and, and kind of overcoming. Even God overcame this chaotic principle and, and all the, or whatever creation have occurred, right? So there, it really is about overcoming and becoming. All I have to say is two words, and I went through this like tangent, I apologize. <laughs> it shows that there's obviously still more to discuss. And, more ground to cover. Uh, <laughs> more ground to cover and uncover. I would say that one of the things about the ages of the world, I was reading some of the Freedom essay, and I was saying to Coop how ages of the world feels, it's almost got an intoxicating vibe. It, I said it feel, felt like uh, Schelling was on cough syrup when he wrote it, right? Because <laughs> he did, yeah. Maybe that's the mystical side, or maybe that's the fragmentary notes side, because it doesn't it doesn't read like uh, some of the other expositions that I've seen. It feels like a little bit more, maybe informal. Is is just a simple way of putting it? It's written almost in a poetic manner. It's very poetic. It's like a cosmic poem. The freedom essay is rigorous, and it starts off with system and world. It builds up through his law predication. And you go through this, and then finally you find out the predicates of the ground and all of these things. So yes, it's um, the freedom essay is very difficult. I find this short, you know, sixty-page text of the ages of the world to be excellent because it's got parts of the freedom essay in it. It's got this poetic manner, but it's also got really interesting things to think about. Yeah, like when he, you go, what? What did I just read? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what Coop and I both appreciate 
is the fact that we were able to discuss with you this cosmological drama. That's something that Coop and I have been kind of interested in these past few weeks is specifically, obviously, because we were discussing Deleuze and Deleuze, some of the more cosmological resonances with, for example, the differential, right? And how that right. just applied to uh, thinking in cosmological terms about the differential is something that we can see mirrored in Schelling, albeit in a slightly different language, but still with a, a similar inspiration. And I yeah. think that that's part of what I liked about it. And I wish that would have been one of the things that Zizek actually talked about <laughs> when really he, he'd rather do his Lacanian shtick, which is fine. And it's good and it has you know it works for uh for what it does but i, I think that there's a little bit of shelling that's missing in that hundred page introduction and i i kind of wish it would have been pared down to like 30 pages and cut out a lot of the the rambling no offense Zizek. at the end the Zizek bibliography is going to be like thousands and thousands of pages like couldn't you just have been more succinct this is why i actually i didn't say to read the intro like i said you could I know, what I know. I, what I find about it is that what he does is he systematizes Schelling through Hegel yeah. and Lacan. Well, and yeah. so he reads the Hegelian dialectic through Schelling, which I think asphyxiates, that's not even a word, it completely takes out all of the, the free and differential aspect of the essay. And he takes out the poetic aspect and he yep. really doesn't like the mystical elements of it. He thinks you could just excise that. And that's not part of it. When I brought up at the beginning of this episode, the Yakaburma passage. Now, when you go back and reflect on our show and think about that passage, that passage will make so much more sense to both of you. And I think yeah. it'll, it's also a little more helpful as well, too. But yeah, Zizek is still great. He does a, a really interesting job of reading Schelling. He's a Hegelian, of course. Yeah. And a Lacanian. And um, if you really like, you know, if you like psychoanalysis, and you like some of the mystical and the cosmological aspects, I highly suggest Sean McGrath's text, The Dark Ground of Spirit, okay. which goes through the psychoanalytic, the libidinal, the death drive, goes nice. through all of the stuff with Yaka Burma and the mystical and the theological and, and this drama. And it's great. It's a fantastic. And Sean's a wonderful scholar and one of my mentors. So he's, I've only met him like twice and I've talked to him through emails, but the way that he lectures, I, I've, Never even really been his student, but I feel like I am because every time I hear him speak or whatever, I pick something up from him. So if you're um, sort of suggesting we reach out, <laughs> because I would like to go, as I mentioned, the I like the notion of Schelling and Freud have sharing a kind of conceptual universe. Yeah. I would actually appreciate that more than a Lacanian Schelling. Not that I have anything against Lacan, but I do think there's something, for me at least, with Freud that is easier to sink my teeth into. <laughs> Even if he goes wrong at places, you know, obviously nobody's perfect. We've mentioned on the show where I think Freud goes wrong, but I do think that there's a lot more clarity in Freud. And so Freud and Schelling, you know, discussion would, for me, be more concrete than a Lacan and Schelling discussion, which we got from Zizek. Yes, yes. And the word, the word in German, bewusstlos which means the unconscious, it's unconscious. And this unconscious and the unconscious that's linked to the past, right? This, and then how, and how it, from the trauma of all of these, you know, from this empty ground and how those forces and drives get 
know, emerged into prime matter. I'm sorry, you guys, you guys keep trying to end the show and I just keep talking. I'm the one that, that kept talking and we can sort of, obviously Coop's job is to edit so he can, he can edit out where he sees fit. But I do like everything that we discussed, not just, as I said, I appreciated the cosmological aspect, some of the psychoanalytic implications. I know we barely touched on, but I think that, as I said, that's already in Zizek's text and didn't need to necessarily get brought to light. But you could have this cosmological interpretation, this uh, psychoanalytic interpretation, this mystical interpretation, all of these different threads that are sort of interwoven into the same text means... I mean, as you said, I'm not sure if it's difficult necessarily, but it's dense and it allows for multiple readings and multiple points of view that really reflects its, its wealth. For that, I think that I'm glad we decided to look at this for today. Reading more into Schelling gave me a deeper appreciation of Deleuze, because as you know, that's one of the things where the little gaps in one's knowledge of the history of philosophy can be a sort of hindrance to to getting more out of what he's doing. And so filling in this gap, or at least a part of the gap, because obviously Schelling too has a wide corpus that even on this fucking text, as you said, there's perhaps 20 variations that we only know three <laughs> yeah. of. Even for this one text, there's a whole... One can devote one's life to just studying that and the potential uh, missing links. So you know, it's it's nice to be able to to dive into these uh, these unknown depths with you. And I really do appreciate having you on. And you know, I know that perhaps in the new year we can have you back to talk about another thinker. And I mean, for example, we haven't done an episode on Kant. I know I would want to look at that with you. Obviously. Cooper would probably want you to look at uh, Sterner with us, you know, so there's, <laughs> there's all kinds of potentials for doing another episode in the near future. Well, thank you so much. I would totally take a look at Sterner. I know he was, I know he was um, interesting. Another marginal figure like Schelling, who's not very really, much yeah. really well known and uh, very interesting. So I would be down to totally take a look at that for sure. Yeah, that sounds so interesting. If you have enough background in Fichte, which I don't personally, but I think that would probably even showing to some degree because of the idea of the creative nothing that is one of Stirner's big points. Cooper, if you want a real fast, nice, short, succinct jump into Fichte, read his lectures called The Vocation of a Scholar. Not The Vocation of Man, but The Vocation of a Scholar. It's It was, you know, when he gave these speeches... And they're really, really good. It's really, really nice. And he breaks down everything. The anstos, the not I, the, the self-positing, all of that stuff. It's not long. It's about 60 pages, just like the, the Welt Elder, the Ages of the World. So yeah, take a look at that. That will give you a lot of background. I mean, you could read The Science of Knowledge. It's massive. That's a great text. That's also something that he rewrote a lot of times, right? As far as I know. Oh my God, have- yeah. I suppose that was just a, a thing that one did in this time and in, in this in this period. I mean, was this something that I'm trying to think? I guess that was just something one did. One just rewrote the same thing over and over. There's all kinds of thinkers I can think that kind of did stuff. It's like so this. funny. You want to hear the you want to hear the funniest thing about this is that Fichte met Kant. Okay, so he actually went all the way to Königsberg and met met Kant and Kant loved him and he said can I get a loan from you and Kant's like no I'm not going to give you money I don't even know you but so what, what happened was he helped Fichte get a, a publication when it got published everyone thought it was Kant so Fichte got really really popular and by 1799 I'll show you next time I talk to you letters 
Kant would write to his friends about how terrible Fichte was. This guy's making my philosophy into a, a shit show. Like, what's going on here? Wow. I couldn't stand it. It's so funny. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that is interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, that's just funny that Kant, I can't imagine him talking, <laughs> talking shit, but, uh, you know, apparently, <laughs> apparently we're all, we're all human. I, I, I always think of Kant as like a, a machine, a sort of celibate machine, you know, just, uh, not in his teenage years. So he had some debauchery. That's good. All right. Good to know that that actually changes my image of the man because I think of him as, as like the virgin philosopher, but apparently not. So uh, he was at a dinner party and someone broke a glass. He got up, picked the pieces, went outside and disappeared for two hours. Finally, his friend came out and said, what are you doing? He's like, I've just measured the geological structure of erosion. So if I dig nine feet the glass won't come up in a hundred years. Someone won't step on it. And he did that for two hours. He did that. He dug the nine feet and put it buried everything. <laughs> what? I <laughs> mean, insane. that's not how I would choose to spend my time at a party, but uh, <laughs> that's a, uh, that's a good one. These kind of little biographical tidbits are, uh, are always interesting. You know, it's good to, to think about these things as well as the big lofty ideas to, to sort of reincarnate or to give flesh back to the, to the thinker. It's yeah. always good to, to remind ourselves that, um, you know, these people were flesh and blood. They had strange desires and perversions and idiosyncrasies, right? It's, it's good to remind ourselves instead of just thinking that of them as a, in terms of their ideas, to give a little bit of life back to the to the individual. That's awesome. Christopher, thanks for joining us today on the Machine Learning Conscious Happy Hour. It's been great. And I do look forward to you sharing some of this stuff on Twitter. We'll let you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. All right. Well, thank you so much. And, and this was so much fun, honestly. And I hope I answered all your questions and I didn't go too off on tangent. We like the tangents on the show. And yeah, it always, sure. all roads lead back to... Uh, to the general gist. And uh, I do think that even if the one question about the death drive didn't get answered directly, I think we talked a lot about, we kind of circled, not to use your <laughs> image, we kind of circled <laughs> around it and, uh, and we got to it. And I think that, you know, for me, and this is just funny, you can look at Zizek, Lacan, Freud, Deleuze, and then a and then hundred other thinkers. And almost every time they have their own unique addition and spin to the death drive because Freud himself even oscillated between several kind of ways of formulating it. Even if at his worst, he thinks of it as aggressivity and, and sort of destructive drive, right. Or, or Thanatos. And so I think his initial muddying of the waters for that concept leads everyone to propose a new version of it. So whenever the death drive is talked about, it is kind of like body without organs or something like this, right? It has, yeah. it spawns discussion and, and there's no, I, I don't even call like disagreements or like someone thinks like, Oh no, this is maybe, maybe Lacan does, but you know, <laughs> I think that everyone has their own little spin on it. And so to be able to like talk about it, everyone's like wrong and right at the same time. That's part of the fun <laughs> of that, that concept. That is just an example of, a fruitful concept that may be empty in content, but can then assume any particular content. And it just, it leads to a discussion, which I think is perhaps more useful than it standing for any one thing. Well, thank yeah. you so much. We'll be talking to you soon. And uh, we're going to finish up here just with uh, going over what we're doing next. But uh, our episode today will, without any uh, unforeseen catastrophes, will drop in uh, two weeks. And um, 
we'll obviously be talking before then. So we'll let you go. And uh, and thanks again for joining us. No problem. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is a typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.